and welcome to the History of Philosophy in India by Janardan Ganeri and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at www.historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, It All Depends, Nagarjuna on Emptiness. I see a red door and I want it painted black. So begins the Rolling Stones song, Painted Black, rock music's greatest tribute to monochrome, unless you count the Beatles' White Album. With this opening lyric, Mick Jagger means to tell us something about his mental state, but he also tells us something about the way things outside us relate to our mental states. He would like the door to be black, either because that would match his mood or because he was hoping to visit the Prime Minister. Yet it stubbornly insists on being a jolly red. We might say that the door and its properties are independent of us, of our desires and attitudes, and indeed independent of anything else. The door is red in itself, just as it is a door in itself, and our perception and knowledge of the door needs to be true to those independent and intrinsic facts. Well, we might say that, but the 2nd century AD Buddhist thinker Nagarjuna would not. He challenges the assumption that there are such independent, freestanding things and properties. Instead, all things are marked by dependent origination, which means that they are empty. This is the core teaching of the Madhyamaka, or Middle Way Buddhist philosophy. As Nagarjuna puts it in one of his two key works, the verses on the Middle Way, whatever is dependently co-arisen, that is explained to be emptiness. That, being a dependent designation, is itself the Middle Way. Nagarjuna's teaching on emptiness is one of the most intriguing but also most controversial developments in ancient Indian thought. It has been seen as mystical and skeptical, as metaphysical and anti-metaphysical, as admirably consistent and deliberately contradictory. It has provoked comparisons to philosophers ranging from the ancient skeptics to Kant, Heidegger, and Wittgenstein. Its historical influence has also been enormous, with Madhyamaka enjoying only limited success in India, but flourishing elsewhere in East Asia, especially Tibet, where Nagarjuna is revered as the second Buddha. His writings are powerfully opposed to the theories of the Vedic schools we have been looking at in recent episodes. He argues vociferously with the Nyaya, the Vaisheshika, and to some extent the other systems we have considered. In fact, he seems to have been a contemporary of Gautama, given that there are passages in the latter's Nyaya Sutra that look as if they have Nagarjuna in mind, and conversely, passages where Nagarjuna seems to be attacking Gautama. Yet Nagarjuna's principal philosophical opponents are actually other Buddhists, mainly the Abhidharma school. In fact, one way of thinking about Nagarjuna's project is that he takes earlier Buddhist skeptical tendencies further than other Buddhists had been willing to go, indeed about as far as anyone could imagine going. As we know, it was standard fare in Buddhist philosophy to reject the reality of certain entities, especially selves, but also wholes, the classic example being the chariot that is nothing more than its parts. The Buddha sometimes seemed to admit the existence of such things, as when he warns that persons can survive into the next life and reap the karmic fruits of their actions. But most Buddhists saw this as a concession to conventional modes of thinking, made for the sake of teaching those who have not yet understood the deeper truths of Buddhism. Nagarjuna's philosophy makes no such concession. It instead convicts all apparent reality of being empty or shunya. 
we'd better be careful to get this idea right, given the warning issued by Nagarjuna himself, emptiness wrongly conceived can ruin a slow-witted person. It would be like a misheld snake or a poorly executed incantation. It seems clear that with his notion of emptiness, Nagarjuna is making a contribution to metaphysics. To say that an object is empty, he explains, means denying that it has what he calls svabhava, or self-nature. And this, in turn, means for it to be independent of other things. Consider Mick Jagger standing before the red door. As we said, it would seem that the redness is intrinsic to the door. Jagger's viewing the door does not make it red, nor does anything else, it is just red in itself. By contrast, the door has other properties that arise only through a relation. For instance, the door's being six feet away from a depressed rock star. In his verses on the middle way, however, Nagarjuna works to undermine this contrast between the intrinsic and relative properties of things. He considers a wide range of phenomena, whole and part, cause and effect, sensation and what is sensed, motion and what is moved, and shows that in every case what may seem to have a fixed essence of its own is in fact relative. When Mick Jagger sees the red door, he depends on the door in order to be someone who sees, and the red door depends on him to be seen. Sensation is like a child born of two parents. This constitutes Nagarjuna's interpretation of the Buddha's famous teaching that everything in the world is interdependent. He would see rival Buddha schools as insufficiently committed to this teaching, as insufficiently careful to avoid essentialism. His view can be contrasted to Abhidharma Buddhist theories that invoked so-called dharmas, which analyzed all experience as being made up of fleeting individual processes. Where an Abhidharmaka might say that a dharma, such as a moment of conscious awareness, has the property of arising, Nagarjuna would say that this makes no sense. Arising cannot have any intrinsic reality, which would allow it to ground the occurrence of the moment of consciousness. The arising of that moment of consciousness would itself have to arise or be produced, and this would lead to a regress. More generally, insofar as some Abhidharma Buddhists describe dharmas as having an independent self-nature, their theory will fall prey to Nagarjuna's battery of skeptical arguments. Of course, these same arguments will also destroy a system like that put forward by Vaisheshika, which envisions that an independently existing substance can have intrinsic properties. What does this theory of emptiness leave behind? Some think the answer is obvious, nothing. A few modern-day scholars and many ancient thinkers have associated Nagarjuna with nihilism, the view that nothing is real but this seems more like a polemical criticism of his teaching than a plausible interpretation. After all, his philosophy styles itself as a middle way, and as Nagarjuna expert Jan Vestehof has rightly pointed out, it's hard to imagine a more extreme and less moderate view than nihilism. Instead, Nagarjuna charts a course between two more extreme positions, eternalism and annihilationism, which were prevalent in Nagarjuna's own day and perhaps more so in the days of the Buddha. The eternalist is an essentialist, who claims that each object exists independently of any others by having an immutable essence. The annihilationist claims that objects do not exist at all. Nagarjuna's middle position is that objects do exist, not however by subsisting in themselves. Instead, the nature and subsistence of each thing is determined by that thing's relations to other objects. Thus, redness is empty, 
not because there is no such thing as red, but because redness always depends on other things, the door that has the red color, for instance. Here it's worth mentioning that the Sanskrit word for empty, shunya, has another technical sense in Sanskrit. It was used by the early Indian mathematicians as the name for zero. The point of introducing zero in their counting system was to provide a place marker. For instance, in the number 307, the zero in the middle indicates that the tens place is empty. It seems unlikely that there is an actual historical connection between this mathematical use of shunya and Nagarjuna's philosophical use, yet there is an analogy between the two. As Bhimal Matilal has remarked, in Madhyamaka, objects are like zeros, having a value, a claim to reality, only in relation to something else or to the position it occupies in a complex and consequently no absolute value. One might object that redness cannot be like zero. It needs to have some kind of intrinsic essence to secure the meaning of the word. We would refer to this essence every time we use the word red, whether we apply it to the door or Mick Jagger's gloriously full lips. But Nagarjuna insists that our words, and also our concepts and philosophical theories, have no independent meaning any more than objects have independent metaphysical properties. The word redness does play a role in our language, but there is no distinct thing out in the world to which it refers. To unmask the emptiness of words and concepts, Nagarjuna uses a style of argument called prasanga. Basically, this means showing that a given concept would imply a contradiction if it had independent reality or essence. It's obvious how this would work in the case of, say, a round square. Suppose I say, this round square is round. That obviously involves a contradiction, namely that a square is round. But neither can I deny that a round square is round. If a round square is anything, then it is surely round. The upshot is that the round square is not anything after all. The phrase has no referent and no real meaning, since allowing the reality of a round square would land us in absurdities. Nagarjuna is a master at applying this form of argument to apparently innocuous cases and showing that they too are empty. A nice example is his treatment of causation. Nagarjuna begins by distinguishing between a cause as such and a mere causal condition. A cause as such is that from which something originates, while a causal condition is that whose occurrence is necessary for its existence. This idea of a causal condition has an impeccable Buddhist pedigree since it appears in the formulation of the Four Noble Truths, there is suffering, suffering has a cause, the removal of the causes of suffering will result in the cessation of suffering, and there is an eightfold path for removing the causes of suffering. Here, the cause of suffering, namely attachment, is what Nagarjuna calls a condition, something whose continuing presence is necessary for the continuing existence of its effect. So long as you continue to be attached to things, you will continue to suffer. This gives us another way to express the meaning of emptiness. When Nagarjuna says that all things are empty, he is saying that all things have causal conditions on which they depend. Again, the existence of each thing depends on something else, and nothing is self-sufficient. An opponent might reply that this is obviously false. Once a potter makes a pot, the pot is self-sufficient. In general, the opponent will infer, we can say that many things originate from their causes and then have independent existence. Nagarjuna opens his verses on the middle way with a prasanga-style attack, 
on this way of thinking, which shows that the notion of origination leads to contradictions. He lays out four options for how such origination might come about. First, a thing might originate spontaneously so that it is self-caused. But this cannot be right. The thing would have to exist first in order to bring itself into existence, which is absurd. So let's consider a second possibility. Each thing is entirely originated by something else, like when a potter makes a pot. But upon reflection, we see that the pot's continued existence does not depend on the potter. The potter can die without the pot's vanishing. So something else, for instance the clay from which the pot is made, must be explaining how the pot is continuing to persist. Fine then, the opponent may say. How about a third option? The thing's existence is caused by both itself and something else. To this option too, Nagarjuna says no. He's actually much better at saying no than he is at saying yes. If this were the case, then one part of the thing would depend on itself, while another part of it would depend on something else. And having made this distinction, we can just apply the previous arguments against self-causation and other causation to these two parts. Now rather exasperated, the opponent may resort to saying that things originate neither out of themselves nor from others. In an entirely predictable move, Nagarjuna says no. This would be tantamount to admitting that the thing is permanent or eternal rather than being originated, which would be to give up on the whole notion that it was caused in the first place. The upshot is that there is no option according to which the notion of causal origination makes sense. As a concept, it fares no better than the round square. Now it doesn't necessarily follow from this that Nagarjuna wants to ban all talk of origination, though it has been said that he attempts to shatter any set of concepts designed to give an intelligible account of the everyday world, he may be happy for us to continue using our concepts in that everyday world. A predominant line of interpretation of Nagarjuna, beginning with his 6th century commentator Chandrakirti and carrying on in the later Tibetan tradition, claims that he is trying to show that our concepts are conventional, fit for communication and other practical purposes. It is only when these concepts are deployed in philosophical theories, theories about how things really are in themselves, that the Madhyamaka critique begins to bite. This is why Nagarjuna is sometimes compared to figures like Wittgenstein. So long as one is using language as it is meant to be used, there is no problem saying that the potter makes the pot. It is only when this making is taken as an aspect of ultimate reality or a theory of causation that we run into problems because we have moved away from the conventional use of the words. This explains why Nagarjuna and the Madhyamaka school of Buddhism in general put so much weight on a distinction between two truths. There is the truth as it seems in the conventional world of everyday transaction, which is called Samvritisat, and there is truth as things are in reality, or Paramatasat, how things really are in themselves, quite apart from their utility to us. As we saw, this distinction could be rooted in early interpretations designed to dispel apparent contradictions within the Buddha's own teaching. Here, it would be turned to a more ambitious philosophical, or better, anti-philosophical, purpose. According to the conventionalist reading, Nagarjuna thinks that we cannot get at things in themselves, either because the very notion of an ultimate reality is incoherent, or simply because we do not have the cognitive resources to get at things as they truly are. But a rival interpretation, which is the one we've been suggesting earlier in this episode, would happily admit that Nagarjuna has a metaphysical view about ultimate reality, 
he is saying that reality is always relative. His point then would be that conventional concepts and language misrepresent things by treating them as if they were independent and had intrinsic properties. The theory of emptiness would allow us to see things aright by exposing their interdependence. To this, we can add yet a third possible way of understanding Nagarjuna. Perhaps he is just a thoroughgoing skeptic, like his near-contemporary the Greek skeptic Sextus Empiricus. On this reading, Nagarjuna's arguments are neither negative nor positive, but simply dialectical and reactive. His sole aim is to undermine the concepts and theories of other philosophers, and he never seeks to put forward any kind of philosophical position or theory of his own. This interpretation is supported by Nagarjuna's famous remark that his teaching involves the abandonment of all views. A good way of testing these interpretations and of testing Nagarjuna as a philosopher is to ask whether his Madhyamaka teaching collapses into self-refutation. If his position is that all statements are empty of content or reference, then it seems to undermine itself. For if the statement that all statements are empty is itself empty, then it can safely be dismissed. If, on the other hand, the middle way philosophy is not empty, then it is a counterexample to what it itself claims, namely that all philosophical formulations are empty. Nagarjuna's critics must have pressed this point upon him during his own life, whether Gautama the Nayayaka or the Abhidharma Buddhists he so vigorously attacked. To answer them, Nagarjuna wrote a second book, winningly entitled Refutation of My Opponents, in which he tried to defuse the allegation that middle-way philosophy is self-defeating. To the accusation that his arguments can achieve nothing if they are empty, he responds that the chariot too is empty, but it can still carry wood. What then would it mean to say that the emptiness thesis is itself empty? Nagarjuna's answer seems to be that he in fact has no thesis, no philosophical theory, at least not of the same type as his rival philosophical systems. To explain this, he offers two analogies, both meant to show the difference between his empty statements and the statements that constitute a philosophical system. First, there is what we might call the silence analogy. Nagarjuna imagines his opponent saying that the doctrine of emptiness is like someone who shouts the command silence. In so doing, he only succeeds in making a noise, thus defeating his own purpose. But Nagarjuna turns the analogy to his own advantage. If there is indeed silence, we cannot announce that there is. The fact that there is silence cannot be said out loud. In the same way, if all the concepts we habitually use to make the world around us intelligible are devoid of meaning and significance, then this is something that cannot itself be announced without using those very empty concepts. But although it cannot be announced, this does not mean it isn't true, just as there can be silence even though no one can observe that there is silence without falsifying the very observation they are making. A second analogy invokes the idea of an artificial person. The middle way philosophy is like the action of one artificial person preventing the actions of another, or of a magician doing magic to counter another magician's spell. The point of this analogy is perhaps just that, even though the statement that all theses are empty is itself empty, and so cannot state anything, it can still show or reveal that this is the true state of affairs. Nagarjuna does not fight fire with fire, but instead fights empty statements with more empty statements. Certainly, these statements do not urge us to make emptiness itself into a kind of metaphysical reality. To claim that the redness of the door is empty is not to say that there is emptiness there instead of redness. 
it is to correct a mistake about the redness of the door, namely the error of believing that redness has independent existence. Nagarjuna's middle way is not, then, self-refuting. His words imply something that cannot be stated, that the very words he is using are without foundation. This is not just another move in the game of language, but an ironic intervention within it. Like the snake he warned us about, Nagarjuna is clearly a pretty slippery character. In hopes of getting a better hold on him, we want to look in more detail at a specific application of his prasanga method, his critique of the concepts of motion and change. These show that a person who is sprinting along a track is in fact running on empty. Nagarjuna's arguments to this effect have frequently been compared to the famous paradoxes of Zeno. Our discussion of this will be ready just as soon as you're done waiting for half the time between this and the next episode to elapse, then half of the remaining time, half of the still remaining time, and so on. Maybe McJagger was right, you can't get no satisfaction. But he did also say that if you try, you can get what you need, which just might be the next installment of The History of Philosophy in India. <laughs>